0: Well, good evening, good evening, hello, one, two, good evening, I was encouraged by Steve, our fantastic sound engineer person who does everything, he and his fantastic team, which we should thank actually, because they do a fantastic job. Steve is more helpful than you know, because he gave me some helpful advice as I was on my way up here. He said, oh, you should keep wearing your beanie. I said, oh, well, it is pretty cold. He said, no, that's not why. He said, there's technical reasons why it's good for you to cover your head. So I'm sorry if I'm blinding anyone out there by the sort of the reflected glory But as my father once received a card, he was blessed with a... Um, or he was follically challenged, like me. He once received a card that said, God only made so many perfect heads, and the rest he covered with hair. <laughs> so. I wonder, did anyone else notice, too, that Andrew Lubbock, when he's riding a bike, bears an uncanny resemblance to Lance Armstrong? Did anyone notice that? He's even got the... <sighs> look... I was very impressed. Um, Anyway, we are on page 33. No, we're not. We are on page 26. Ancom was going to be over a lot quicker than you expected just then. Page 26. Now, Christianity is not that complicated. Uh, You might think that's actually a bit rich coming after the two talks that I gave yesterday. Okay, so I'll grant you, Christianity is profound. Yes, it's astonishing. But at its heart, Christianity is not that complicated. Because at its heart, the Christian faith is about a person Jesus. This person, Jesus, stands at the center of God's plans for the world. He is the Messiah the Christ, the anointed one, the king in God's kingdom. That was talk one yesterday. And as his resurrection from the dead shows, he lives. Amen. Jesus is alive now. He's the living Lord. He's God incarnate. He's worthy of all worship. That was last night. See, it might be profound. It's sure astonishing. It's not that complicated though, is it? We proclaim the living Lord, Jesus the Christ. Now, over the next few evenings, what we're going to do is is fill out those basic truths a bit. Tonight, we journey to the glorious and the horrific climax of Jesus' ministry, his death. Because the Christian scriptures testify that Jesus is the Christ, He's the living Lord, who died for us. So that's what we'll explore tonight. And I don't think there is a topic in all the world that is more awe inspiring than that. Now, let me tell you, I've studied a few topics that are awe inspiring. I've studied higher mathematics, (laughs) I studied quantum physics. I didn't understand a single thing they said. I've studied some literature. I even studied economics. Okay, I never studied geology because I could never get excited about rocks. But there is no topic more awe-inspiring than what we come to look at tonight. Which is the cross of Jesus. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come again tonight to the cross of your Son, fill our minds and our hearts with your truth by your Spirit. Father, let us see Jesus. Let us see him tonight through your word in new depth, with greater clarity and a richer grasp of what he has done for us to your praise and glory. Amen. Well, the Apostle Paul was absolutely clear. He proclaimed the cross of Jesus, even though it wasn't popular, and even though it made no sense, and even though it wasn't politically correct. He was going to proclaim the cross anyway. You can see it there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews... And foolishness to the Gentiles. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Does that mean that Paul only ever spoke about Jesus' death? I resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified? No, it doesn't. In fact, in the same letter of 1 Corinthians, you get to chapter 15, and he spends a whole chapter talking about Jesus' resurrection. So, But when you read chapters 1 and 2 in context, what's Paul saying? He's saying, I'm determined to never pull back from proclaiming Jesus' death. It may not be popular, it may not be understood, it may not win me any friends, but I will not pull back from proclaiming it because it is critical, it is vital to how the Christian life was to be lived. It was vital to understand the cross if you were going to live the Christian life on a day-to-day basis. So he wasn't going to pull back from proclaiming it. But we see the centrality of the cross in other places in the New Testament as well. Uh, The Gospels, for instance. So it's reflected in the Gospels in the way Jesus repeatedly stresses the necessity of his death. As Jesus journeys to Jerusalem, the place where he knows he is going to die... He keeps saying, it is, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and be killed and be raised again. It's also reflected in just the sheer amount of time the Gospels spend on the events immediately surrounding Jesus' death. If you actually stop and just think about it, when you're reading a gospel account, you read Mark or Matthew or Luke or or John, any of them, a vast majority of the space of that gospel is spent in just the last week and even the last couple of days of Jesus' life. One person once commented on Mark's gospel. He described it as Mark's gospel is a passion narrative with an extended introduction. And it actually applies to all the Gospels. Jesus' death on the cross is clearly the terrible and necessary final showdown to which Jesus is determinate, determinedly marching towards. Why? Why does he do it? And why is it such a big deal? What's so special about this cross? And over the centuries, lots of people have seen different things in Jesus' cross. There's all sorts of alternatives, if you like. Some have said and would say, frankly, Jesus' cross, no big deal. Jesus' death by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans was just one crucifixion amongst literally thousands. Thousands of people died the same way Jesus did. What's the big deal in his death? At most, it might be an historical curiosity because we have some accounts of it. Some might say that. Others have looked at the cross of Jesus and found its primary meaning to be as a symbol of injustice. Here is the quintessential innocent victim suffering unjustly under an oppressive power. Others have looked at the cross and have seen a failure. Here was a guy... An idealist who died a pointless death. Here's a guy who's who's crushed by the very cogs that he set in motion, by which once he'd set going, he was powerless to stop, even when he realised his whole mission was in vain. Others look at the cross and see here's an inspiring example. His suffering that is embraced, his persevering faith, his generous forgiveness as Jesus meets his death in an exemplary way. And that's just a few. How do we decide what the cross of Jesus actually means? Well, the best place to begin, I suggest, is what we're going to start tonight. That is, to start with Jesus' own understanding of his death. So we're going to start with the night before the night before he died, where Jesus interprets his own death. And we're going to take this passage and we're going to just, just, just tease it apart and try to understand what was Jesus trying to communicate about his own death the very night before it happened. So point C there. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 26, Paul relays to the Corinthians... What had been passed on to him about Jesus last night with his disciples? So this is what Paul writes there. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. So here's Jesus the night before he dies explaining the significance of his coming death to his disciples. There's six things, I think. Six aspects to what Jesus is doing here that we'll unpack. First of all, what Jesus is doing is creating a new Passover meal. The Gospel accounts tell us this was the Jewish Passover that Jesus was celebrating with his disciples. Now, the Passover... That was a meal remembering the great moment of salvation in Israel's history. The great moment of salvation in Israel's history. If you're not familiar with it, the account of the original Passover is in Exodus chapters 1 to 12. The Passover meal commemorated the climactic moment when the Lord God dramatically intervened to secure the salvation of his people who were in slavery in Egypt. God commanded the Israelites then to commemorate that defining moment of deliverance every year by eating this Passover meal together. And so Jesus is doing what had been commanded. He's eating the Passover meal at the right time with his disciples. However, within this particular Passover meal, Jesus does something very odd. He replaces the salvation that was celebrated in the original Passover meal with a new salvation. And by implication, a greater salvation. A salvation to remember from here on. What's this new salvation, this greater salvation? It's one that's focused in on his own death. His death was going to be the new Passover moment, securing an even greater salvation. That's how he interprets his coming death. This new Passover meal, point two, was celebrating a new exodus. So when the Lord God had rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, in that original Passover and Exodus, he'd rescued them out of what? Well, he rescued them out of slavery and idolatry. According to Ezekiel chapter 20, the Israelites, when they were in Egypt, they were worshipping Egyptian gods. They were in slavery and they were in idolatry. But the Lord God rescues them out of slavery and idolatry and brings them to forgiveness and freedom. He brings them to forgiveness and freedom. He forgives them for their idolatry, for their rejection of him as the true God, and he frees them from slavery to the Egyptians. That was the first Passover. But in this new Passover that Jesus is announcing, what's going on? In this new exodus... ...that Jesus is affecting through his own death. Well, this exodus will also bring people freedom and forgiveness. You can see it explicitly if you read Matthew's account of the Last Supper. It's there on your page. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus passes the cup and says, "...this is my blood," meaning his death, "...of the covenant, "...which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." So Jesus makes clear what's on offer here through his death is forgiveness of sins. And it's picked up throughout the rest of the New Testament. So Paul in Colossians chapter 2 there on your page, God forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. That's where forgiveness is won, at the cross, in this new exodus. But it's not just forgiveness, Jesus secures, it's also freedom. Look at Paul in Galatians chapter 4 here. While we were minors, says Paul, we were enslaved. There's that word. We were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to, in order to redeem those who were under the law, So, that we might receive adoption as children. So, you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. So, what Paul's saying is that Jesus' death has brought freedom for Jews and Gentiles. And once you've got Jews and Gentiles, you've got every human being that exists because you're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. So, if you're not a Jew, guess what? You're a Gentile. He's saying Jesus' death brought freedom for everybody. Cuz he's addressing Christian believers here from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. So in verses 1 in verses 3 to 5 there in that passage from Galatians 4, the we is referring to Jewish Christians. But the you in verse 7 there is referring to Gentile Christians. And Paul's point is That without Jesus and his death, both Jews and Gentiles were enslaved. What were they enslaved to? They were enslaved to sin and the spiritual forces of evil. Verse 3, the Jews there were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. That is the spiritual forces that are not of God. And in verse 8, which is the next verse after that passage, Paul says to the Gentiles... Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. He says, you were slaves to these weak and miserable forces. So both Jews and Gentiles were slaves to spiritual forces of evil. Or another way of saying that is they are slaves to sin. And Paul actually says a bit earlier in Galatians chapter 3, he says, Scripture has imprisoned all things under the power of sin. Now, what's the point of this? Well, there's been quite a movement recently. I don't know if you've been aware of it, but it's been happening in Facebook land and as well as in the real world. There's been quite a movement recently to eradicate contemporary slavery. Has anyone been aware of that at all? A few. The particular sorts of slavery that people are trying to eradicate are child trafficking and sex trafficking. And quite rightly... We want to see these things eradicated. The slave trade is dehumanising, it's immoral, and it's horrifically damaging to people. That's why it's scary that the New Testament talks about the human condition outside of Jesus as slavery. We are enslaved to sin. We are enslaved to spiritual forces that are not gods. And these things are not good masters to have. Paul says in Romans 7, speaking, I think, of his life outside of Jesus, his life outside of faith in Jesus, he says, I'm a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. I'm a prisoner of the law at sin at work within me. See, my guess is you've never thought of yourself outside of Jesus as a slave, as enslaved. It's not an attractive image. But it does speak of that tremendous and terrifying power that sin holds over all of us outside of Jesus. Sin is so entrenched in our life outside of Jesus. It is so thoroughgoing in our thought patterns, in our attitudes, that it is like being in slavery there is no escape. There is no relenting. And it's not that sin is imposed on us either as a master purely from outside. Paul says earlier in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, he says, when you offer yourself to someone as an obedient slave, you are slaves of that one whom you choose to obey. So perversely, without the work of Jesus in us and for us, we keep on choosing to to make ourselves slaves to sin because we offer ourselves to sin and Paul says you offer yourself to sin you become that slave to sin what can possibly break that terribly destructive cycle of voluntary slavery to sin is there any hope for us well Paul goes on in Romans 7 and points in the right direction he says wretched man that I am Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is Jesus in his death that makes possible our exodus, our escape from slavery, our forgiveness. Exactly how he does that in his death we'll get to shortly. But on the night before he died... Jesus pointed to the cross and he says, That is the great exodus that will bring forgiveness and freedom for all who are enslaved to sin and spiritual forces of evil. But that original exodus from Egypt was also a decisive moment of God's victory over the powers, over the idols who aren't God's. See, the whole of the original Exodus was actually a fight. I don't know if you've sat down and read through the Exodus narrative, those chat like the whole book of Exodus recently. Uh, Several years ago, we did it as our book of the year at EU public meetings and it was fantastic just to sort of go right through the book of Exodus and try and see the big story that goes on there. And what you realise is the big fight here wasn't between Moses and Pharaoh. The big fight was actually between Moses, God, the Lord and Pharaoh's God, the Egyptian gods, who weren't really gods but just idols. It was a battle to see who was the real God. And it was a battle which the Lord God won decisively. And the Passover itself is actually described in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, as the moment where the Lord brought judgment on the gods of Egypt. Well, even more, with the exodus Jesus' effects through his death on the cross. You see there on your page, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul writes, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Now, when Paul writes rulers and authorities, he's not talking about political rulers. He's talking about spiritual forces. God's victory over the spiritual forces of evil happened at the cross. In fact, the cross was where the devil himself was rendered powerless. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 2 on your page. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. You remember yesterday morning we were looking at Jesus' announcement of the kingdom and he talked about tying up the strong man, meaning the devil? Well, here we see the ultimate way that Jesus ties up the strong man. He ties up the strong man by dying on a cross. In his own death, he strips the devil of his greatest weapon. He strips death of its power in his own death. And so the devil is rendered impotent The devil has no power over you If you are in Christ He's not been finally destroyed The New Testament tells us He prowls around like a roaring lion Looking for someone to devour But he's a lion with no teeth For you If you're in Christ He But he got no teeth He sounds scary But the New Testament says, if you resist him, he will flee from you. The devil? Flee from me? Yes, because you're in Christ. And he's been defeated soundly. Not finally destroyed. For that we still wait but he's been soundly defeated, but he's been rendered impotent through Jesus' own death on the cross. So the consequence of tying up the strong man is that those who've been enslaved to the devil, those who are enslaved to him and the power of death that he wields, those are now set free. So Jesus' death as the new exodus, it is the decisive moment of victory over God's enemies. So, Jesus interprets his own death as a new Passover, celebrating this new exodus with everything that comes with that. Point three, this exodus is achieved through a new sacrifice. So there's a few things to notice here. First is this, the substitutionary lamb of the original Passover. Now, the original Passover moment in Egypt was not only a moment of salvation for God's people, the Israelites, it was also a moment of judgment on those who chose to ignore the Lord. You, you may know the story. Each house at the original Passover, when God said, right, I'm going to rescue my people out of Egypt, each house was told to take a lamb, kill it, wipe some of its blood over the doorframe of the house. And then on the night in question, as judgment on those who, who actually ignore the Lord and ignore his instructions... The angel of the Lord passed through the whole land and in each household, the firstborn died except for those households which had the blood of the lamb on the doorframe. Over those houses, the angel of the Lord literally passed over. Hence, Passover. It celebrates great salvation but it also remembers the great judgment that came. On those who ignored the Lord and said, What? Kill a lamb, wipe its blood on the door? Get out of here. The point to note here, though, is that the lamb of the Passover was substitutionary. The blood on the doorframe said, Someone has already died in this house. The lamb. And so the firstborn in that household lived. In the Last Supper, when Jesus is there with his disciples the night before he died, the blood that secures this new salvation and the forgiveness and the escape from judgment, the blood that Jesus points to is his own blood. In fact, you might like to jot this reference down. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 the Apostle Paul says, he talks about Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so the New Testament consistently highlights the substitutionary nature of Jesus' death, that he died in our place. And the background for Jesus substituting himself for us, lies in the Old Testament, particularly in a somewhat enigmatic figure in the prophet Isaiah, one who's known as the suffering servant of the Lord. So back in the prophecy of Isaiah, this servant of the Lord takes a substitutionary role. He suffers in the place of God's people. Isaiah 53 is the clearest, verses five to six there on your outline. But he, that is the Lord's servant, was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the punishment that made us whole and by his bruises we are healed or we like sheep have gone astray we have all turned to our own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all and that prophecy about the suffering servant is applied to jesus explicitly in 1 peter chapter 2 where Peter writes, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins we might live for righteousness. And then he quotes Isaiah 53, by his wounds you have been healed. Or again, the same idea used by Paul there on your outline, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for our sake God made him, talking about Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what you've got then are two substitutions coming together. You've got the Passover lamb of the Exodus and the suffering servant of Isaiah. Both those substitutions coming together, finding their greater reality in Jesus and his death. Here is the one who's going to die bearing our sins. Here's the one on whom the Lord has laid all our sins such that he dies in our place. He's our Passover lamb. Let's press down on this a bit more. What does Jesus' sacrifice achieve? How does it work? And so at the heart of Jesus' sacrifice is this concept of propitiation, a turning away of God's wrath. And now here we come on your outline to one of those magnificent statements in the Bible that puts into one sentence the wonder of what God has done for us in the cross of Jesus. This sentence, Romans chapter 3 verses 23 to 25, this sentence is a conference in itself. So I don't know how to do it except like read one word a minute so you would think about it. I'll read it a bit faster than that. Paul says, For there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. So notice that verse 25 there. Paul is saying God put forward Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement, or the word is literally propitiation. Now to propitiate someone is to offer something that turns aside their wrath. So when you turn up with flowers, we actually we should go. What was Ulysses? Should be our example. And what's his non-girlfriend's name? Marin. No. Made Marion. Marion. Thank you. How can Ulysses propitiate the wrath, the righteous wrath of Marion? Well, he should do this. I reckon he should turn up with flowers. There's a way, okay, maybe it's lame, but there's a way, an attempt to propitiate the wrath, to turn away the righteous wrath by offering of a gift. That's what it is to propitiate. The sacrifice that turns aside God's just wrath against us as sinners is Jesus' death. But notice the thing is, who put forward the sacrifice? God did. God propitiates himself in Christ. Now, because see, the particular, um, what God's wrath looks like is described by Paul there a bit later in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. He says, for the wages of sin is death. What you and I have earned as sinners, as those who are in our natural state, refuse to let God be God in our life, what we've earned by that behavior is death. That's what sin deserves. That, that's what it rightly earns. And that's not good news for you or for me or for any human being. Since all have sinned, as Paul says in Romans 3, and the wages of sin is death. But God's intention has always been to rescue us. Even though we made ourselves his enemies. Even though we said, God, take a hike. I don't want you or your ways. God's intention has always been to rescue us. So through the Old Testament and its sacrificial system, God laid the groundwork for the salvation that he would eventually affect through Jesus. And the key to understanding that sacrificial system is, is that the wages of sin is death. What sin deserves, what sinners will experience under the wrath of God, is death. So if God is going to spare sinners, then someone or some something will need to take their place. And that's what the Old Testament sacrifices represented. They were a substitute that propitiated the wrath of God. You can see it there in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. We're speaking of the sacrifices there on your page. God says, For the life of the flesh of the sacrifices is in the blood, and I have given it to you for making atonement for your lives on the altar. For as life, it is the blood that makes atonement. The principle he's saying there is, it is life for life. Instead of your life, it's the life of the sacrifice. That's the, propiti- the propitiatory, propitiatory substitutionary sacrificial system. And so then go back to Paul in Romans three, what we see is that God himself puts forward Jesus as a propitiation, through his death, in order to grant us the salvation that's an undeserved gift. God propitiates himself through Jesus to show grace to us. But as you think about that a bit more, the question does arise, how can Jesus, who's just one dude, how can he substitute himself for everybody else? Because that's a lot of people. How can that work? And the answer to that is Jesus substitutes for us as our representative. And again, the, the illustration and background is from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament temple sacrificial system, who offered the sacrifice? It was the high priest who at certain key times would act, offer sacrifices for sin on behalf of everybody. And the New Testament writers, particularly the writer to the Hebrews, picks that up as a shadow of the greater salvation and the greater sacrifice that Jesus offered. Jesus is the high priest who represents us. So Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, Jesus had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a propitiation a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. What was the sacrifice that Jesus, the high priest, offered? It was his own life. He substitutes himself for us because he represents us, all of us. And when someone represents you, what happens to them happens to you. So my eldest son plays trumpet in the school band and the school band recently won the Sydney Estedford. Apparently, ooh, apparently that's significant, I don't know. Um, <laughs> tragically, I couldn't be there because, well, we have a lot of children and one parent gets to go and the other person gets to play with the other children and that was me that time. <laughs> my son's fellow trumpeter in the band, not my son, but his friend, he was chosen to go up and receive the trophy. But in receiving the trophy, the whole band got the glory of being the winner. My son is no less a winner than his friend who actually laid hands on the trophy. And his friend is no more truly a winner than my son. Because what happens to the representative has happened to all whom he represents. That's why that Jesus is our representative is so important. It's not just that therefore he was able to substitute in and take what we deserve. It's also that what happened to him has happened to us with him. It's not just him instead of us, it's us with him. So in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with Christ so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. See, Jesus' death has done something incredible to us. It's not that he just died instead of us, but that our old self, our old self that was enslaved to sin, that was destined for wrath, that couldn't help but rebel against God and his ways, that old self is dead. If you have faith in Jesus, if you're his follower, then that person who was enslaved to sin, that person is dead. Because that person was crucified with Jesus. So you are no longer enslaved to sin. Or to see it in another place, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, on your page, Paul writes, we are convinced that one has died for all. So that's substitution, that's Jesus dying instead of us. Therefore, he says, all have died. That's representation. When Jesus died, all of us who in him died as well. So I'd like to think that we can start to pull some of this stuff together now. The the original Passover, that's that great moment of salvation at the Exodus where forgiveness, freedom, secured for God's, at God's initiative for his people, won through the sacrificial death of a substitute lamb who turned aside the just wrath of God. All of that's there in the original Passover celebration and what Jesus is saying is, you can forget that. Well, actually not quite true. Rather, what he's saying is, in a new way, I am superseding that, as astounding as that was, as magnificent, as as defining as that exodus was, I'm superseding that with a new exodus, a greater deliverance, a more profound, more needed freedom for you, a freedom from slavery to sin, a freedom from the penalty of death and God's wrath through my own substitutionary and sacrificial death as your representative but the final point to note here this blows me away and I hope it does you too is that Jesus did it willingly Jesus did this willingly he wasn't forced to do this for us he chose it he didn't choose it because he's into suffering You've only got to read the accounts in the Gospels of Jesus' agony this very night, straight after this meal, when they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying about it and he's so stressed by it that he sweats blood, the Gospel writers say. And he earnestly prays, Father, if it be possible, take this cup away from me. but not my will, but yours. The prospect of him substituting himself for us under the wrath of God was something that filled Jesus with dread. But he chose it because he's a saviour. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Jesus Christ, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. He gave himself, he did all of this for his Father's glory and for your salvation. Now we've spent a long time there on this section understanding Jesus' death as a sacrifice and the reason why we've done that is because it is such a central way that the New Testament communicates the significance and the achievement of Jesus' death. But there are at least a few more aspects to Jesus' death that he introduced here in this Last Supper that we're going to quickly scan over. So point four on your outline The new exodus Jesus achieved through his death inaugurates a new covenant. Now this is actually a very significant point that's often overlooked. See, when God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai and established a covenant with them, a binding agreement. But Israel kept failing to keep that covenant, so they ended up outside of the promised land in exile, as we saw yesterday. Now, if you go back and read some of the Psalms from that time, around the time of exile, like Psalm 79 or Psalm 80 or Psalm 106, you can see being in exile was, a, was terribly distressing for God's people. What will happen to God's promises to bless his people? Indeed, what will happen to his promises to bless the whole, whole world through his people? What's going to happen to those if we're stuck in exile? And it's while Israel are in exile that God makes a critical promise. He promises not to restore the old covenant. He promises to establish a new covenant. And you can read God's promises there on your outline from Jeremiah 31. This new covenant was going to be accompanied by three things. Forgiveness of sins. God changing the hearts of His people so that they would want to follow Him, and thirdly, the pouring out of God's Spirit on all these people. Now you've got to understand that that promise of that new covenant, a new day, where those three, forgiveness of sins, that God's people He would change their hearts, that He would pour out His Spirit, that was a massive promise. But what does Jesus say the night before he dies? Luke chapter 22, verse 20 there. As he passes around the cup, he says, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And at that point, everyone will be going, Sorry, say that again? The new covenant? Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, the new covenant? In your death now? This is a whoa, hold on to your socks moment. Right? This is, this is mega. The new covenant. And part of the reason that the new covenant should be jolly well exciting for you here is because there was no way. That you and I could be part of God's people without the new covenant. unless Unless you fully became a Jew. That was the only way. Because it was a new covenant for a new people of God. Now in this new covenant salvation is open to all through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says it there in the passage on your page in Luke 24 Jesus said to his disciples after his resurrection, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So it's a new covenant for a new people of God. But the final thing we need to note about this new exodus is that like the first exodus, it's all motivated out of God's love and faithfulness. Moses said to the Israelites back in the uh, after the first exodus, as they're about to enter into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he says, It was not because you were more numerous than other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. God doesn't save people because they deserve it. God saves people despite the fact that they don't. God doesn't rescue people because he owes it to them. He rescues them even though what they are owed is wrath. God doesn't even free people from slavery because they love him. He frees them purely and solely because he loves them. That's the character of the one true living God. He is love. And if the first exodus from Egypt was testimony to God's love, how much more the greater exodus secured through the death of Jesus? John writes in 1 John 4, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus' death, as the new Exodus, really is God's statement to the world, I love you this much. This much is how much I love you. He doesn't say it as a meaningless symbol of love. He says it because this is the means by which he secures the exodus that you and I need, the freedom and the forgiveness that you and I need. So let's then try and draw together this extended reflection on Jesus' interpretation of his own death. I'm using two statements here to draw it together. first is from the Nicene Creed. That statement goes way back to 381, which um, a church council at that time, they drew up this statement as reflecting, accurately, they believe, the teaching of the apostles as captured in Scripture. And part of that Nicene Creed puts it like this. For us humans and for our salvation... He That is the eternal son of God came down from heaven He was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary And became a human being For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate He suffered death and was buried Notice the very first line of that section of the creed I've got there It says that the whole point of the incarnation Was for our salvation For our salvation, he came down from heaven. Our salvation is the point. The point of God the Son taking on flesh, coming amongst us as Jesus, was to save us. God wasn't out for a new experience. Like you might go try skydiving. Hey, maybe I just go and hang out with my peeps for a while as a peep. He wasn't dying to hang out with his peeps. He died so that we could be his peeps and hang out with him. For our sake, he was crucified. It was for us. 1 Timothy 1.15 Here is a trustworthy saying that is worthy of full acceptance, says Paul. What is it? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The point of the incarnation is our salvation. And you can see how the EU doctrinal basis puts it. You didn't even know we had a doctrinal basis. But we do. And what's more, it's very important document. But the EU doctrinal basis puts it like this: the Sydney University Evangelical Union upholds the fundamental truths of Christianity, including point four, redemption from the guilt, penalty and power of sin only through the sacrificial death as our representative and substitute of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. How much truth can you pack into one sentence? That pretty much draws together everything that we've said tonight in that one sentence. But notice how it expresses the freedom that Jesus has won for us. We have redemption from what? You should probably underline these words. Redemption from the guilt, the penalty, and the power of sin. Because Jesus died for you, no matter how stained with sin you might be, if you have come to Jesus in repentance and faith, then you, my friend, are no longer guilty. No matter what the stains of sin are, if you have come to Him, your Passover lamb, you are no longer guilty. Because he bore our sins in his body on that tree. Someone else has borne that sin. You are no longer guilty. So if you've done stuff and you've come to Christ in repentance and faith, stop beating yourself up about it. That sin has been dealt with. That guilt has been taken. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've been redeemed from the guilt. What's more, you no longer face the penalty either of God's wrath as a sinner, because upon him was the punishment that made us whole and you're no longer under the power of sin you're no longer sin slave since your old self was crucified with christ this is the astounding freedom that he has won for us at the cross in his death this is the wonderful exodus that he secured for you and for me as our passover lamb well in a moment we're going to stand up have a stretch have a break uh, we'll break for a few minutes, but I just say um, to sort of ease our transition back in, uh, some music will start up. And when you hear the music, if at that point you could try to hurry along and get back to your seats, and then we'll make a start. So ha- stand up, have a stretch for a few minutes, and then we'll do that. Okay. Now, while you're sitting down, a few quick book reviews just to sort of, while people are sitting down, three books for you to look out of the bookstall. Book number one, if you're interested in trying to understand more of the Old Testament because uh, when we've gone back to the Old Testament, you go, oh, really, I don't know much about this. This is a really excellent book. This book's called The Faith of Israel by Bill Dumbrell. This book costs 25 bucks, but this book gives you an introduction, a theological introduction to every book in the Old Testament. So this is a book, if I'm ever using any part of the Old Testament, I will go and look to see what Bill says because it'll give me a helpful overview of the lot. Okay, that's one. Number two, we've been talking about the cross. We've been talking about the cross. This is a new book. You should never recommend a book I haven't read. I have not read this book. Graham Cole, though, I've read others of his stuff, uh, and he's a, a, a good, solid evangelical theologian. And uh, this is a book on the cross, God the Peacemaker, How Atonement Brings Shalom. If we decide to do uh, annual conference on the cross of Christ in probably two or three years' time, this will be the book that I buy and read as a new book that's come out that I just want to get my head around. So I think that's great that we've got that. You might like to have a look at, at that. Another one, John Stott, The Radical Disciple, probably the last book that uh, John Stott will ever have Published. Uh, he's quite old now. He's in his 90s. Um, and this was published from a series of talks that he gave, sort of the last public addresses he gave. A friend, good friend of mine, read this recently and said, This was really, really good. The Radical Disciple, chapters on nonconformity, conformity, Christ likeness, maturity, creation care, simplicity, balance, dependence, death. I think that's probably a really good book. It costs. So there's three books to have a look at the bookstore. Okay. Now, as we get going here, I'm just letting you know that I am not going to deal with section F. So if you want to ask me about that later, you can do so at question time. Now, some people have considerable issues with what I've been teaching tonight from God's Word. Not necessarily people here in this room, but people who've heard this sort of explanation of the atonement before and been pretty unhappy with it. It's worth taking a moment to consider their objections and see what we can say about it. And the main question is around, how can Jesus do this for us? How can Jesus do this for us? So David Edwards, who calls himself a liberal theologian, expresses some issues. He says many of us find it impossible to understand the idea of God punishing himself. Evangelical atonement theory suggests that God has done something which would be crazy or wrong for a good man or woman to do. A judge would not be respected if having convicted a criminal and sentenced him to death or imprisonment for life, he underwent execution or served the sentence himself he would be thought to be perverting the course of justice. And again, all the eloquence of the son, of the suffering servant and of some Christian theories of atonement cannot obscure the simple and elementary fact that it is immoral to punish anyone who is not guilty. So Edward identifies two problems here two points where he thinks the sort of atonement theology I've been explaining tonight from the scriptures is immoral. First, it's immoral for God to punish himself. Second, it's immoral to punish a person who is not guilty. Now, those are not lightly dismissed. After all, we say that God is a God of justice and he would never do anything that wasn't just or moral. So how do we answer Edward's objections? Well, Christology is the key. John Stott observes, at the root of every caricature of the cross, there lies a distorted Christology. So if you think that the cross is immoral or that God is doing something there that is nonsensical or unjust, then you haven't really understood who Jesus is. It's getting your Christology right and understanding Jesus as fully God and fully human that makes sense of the cross. So let's take Edward's second objection, first of all, that it's immoral to punish a person who is not guilty. So the New Testament response is that Jesus was not an innocent third party. He was God himself. It would be immoral if God randomly punished an innocent third party. So in our household, it's common, or the common sort of time out for the younger kids is that they have to put their hands on the wall. Now that has an advantage, just by the way, of being a very mobile penalty system. You can do that anywhere. (laughs) So that's just a tip for you. Don't have some special naughty cushion. What, you're going to carry that round with you wherever you go? I tell you, hands on the wall. You can do that anywhere, Even in the bush. Hands on the tree. <laughs> hands on that roadkill. <laughs> you can do it anywhere, right? But if I said, I said, Baxter, that's terrible. Don't stick your cheese stick in your brother's ear. So, Abby, go and put your hands on the wall. <laughs> oh, come on. It's not just to punish it in an innocent third party. That's not just. But if we're the sinners, hasn't God done exactly something like that in sending Jesus to the cross instead of you? But the key here is that Jesus is not merely an innocent third party. A diagram there is wrong. You've got to cross that out. He's not an innocent third party. Jesus is God the eternal son. So it's not God imposing the penalty on a third party. Instead, out of love, he takes it on himself. So John Stott puts it like this. And if you get this quote, then you really do get the wonder of the Christian understanding of God. He says, The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. So Jesus is not an innocent third party, he is God himself. But nor is he just God alone. He's also one of us. See, this is Edward's first objection. How can God just decide to punish himself? That's not moral either. But the thing is, Jesus isn't God alone. He's fully human. He is one of us. So that second diagram is wrong too. He's not simply God. In order to save us, God becomes a human being, the man Jesus. And as our representative, Jesus, fully God, fully man, entirely justly substitutes himself for us because he is our representative. And there's a third point to note as well. Jesus could never function as our representative and substitute if he himself had suffered from that same pollution of willful sin that alienates the rest of us from God. He can never be just any human being. But rather, in order to make atonement for us, he had to be without sin. So that third diagram is not quite right either, is it? Because he can't just be one of us. He has to be one of us, but as Hebrews chapter 4 says, one who's been tested in every respect, as we are, yet without sin. So maybe now you see, why, why did we do resurrection last night, but Jesus' death tonight? That was all a bit wacky. And the reason is because you need to understand who Jesus is as fully God and fully man, which we learn through the resurrection in order to make sense of the cross, to make sense of our, our salvation. You need to understand who this Jesus really is. Well, let's leave aside some of that for a moment and let's come back. Uh, to the cross and have our Jesus revealing reality moment for tonight what does the cross reveal what reality does it reveal well I want to suggest to you that Jesus cross reveals three things to us it reveals the seriousness of sin see I think we find it hard to believe that sin is really a problem We see like the idea that there are black lies and white lies. You know, white lies being the lies that really don't matter. We'd like to think sin is like that. There are big bad sins, we know that. Killing people, pedophilia, rape, being a bad barista. They are the bad (laughs) sins, right, out there. But then there are the acceptable sins. The acceptable sins of no real consequence, sins that in our opinion shouldn't really be sins at all. Sex between consenting adults outside of marriage. Greed. Not treating God as God. Hating your enemy. Putting yourself forward to get ahead. I mean, that's not bad, is it? complaining about the way you've been treated behind someone's back. But see, the Bible identifies all of those as contrary to the character and purposes of God. All of them. They are all contrary to his character and purposes. They are all ultimately destructive to the way God intended life to be lived and experienced. They are doing damage to you and to those around you. They are all ultimately required Jesus' death as the only remedy. Sin is that poisonous, that destructive, that immoral, that serious that Jesus had to die for it. The white lie, the unloving thoughts, The refusal just to let God be God, the only way God could save you from the condemnation that you deserve was to send his son to suffer in your place. The cross says, stop kidding yourself. Sin is this serious. But it also reveals the depth of our need. The wages of sin is death. We see that reality nowhere clearer than the cross of Jesus. As Jesus takes our place enduring that wrath of God upon our sin doesn't the extreme nature of that sacrifice tell you something about the depth of our need? That he would do that. That he had to do that for us. See it's the extent of the remedy tells you how much trouble you're in. So when the doctor says, take two Panadol, call me tomorrow, you go, okay, no big, no, no big drama there. But when the doctor says, we have to take off the whole breast, or when the doctor says, the leg will need to come off, Or when the doctor says, we're going to replace all your bone marrow. That's when you know you're really in need. The extent of the remedy tells you the depth of the need. And any way you look at it, the cross of Jesus is an extreme, almost unfathomable remedy that God the Eternal Son had to take on flesh, humble himself to death on a cross, endure the wrath of God against the sins of the whole world, what profound remedy is that? So outside of Jesus, we must be in much deeper trouble than we know. But finally, the cross of Jesus reveals the reality of the love of God. See, if sin is this serious, and our need is that deep, then God must love us so very much. And it's not just that he must love us together a lot, but he loves you because Jesus died not just for all of us, but he died for you. There is that place in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul puts it this way. He says, The life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved Me, and gave himself for me. So don't think that somehow Jesus loves all of humanity, but not you. There are no exceptions to his love. There are no footnotes, no caveats. Jesus loved you. How do I know that? How can I know that for certain? Because he gave himself to death on the cross for you. He wanted to be your Passover lamb. He wanted to secure your forgiveness, your freedom, your exodus. And so out of his love, he chose to go there to the cross for you. That is the centrality of the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Well, let's wrap up then. Let's wrap up on page 32. Who is this Jesus? The answer tonight, he is the crucified Christ. The crucified Christ, the Lamb who was slain. And once you grasp that, of who he is, that he is the crucified Christ, the Lamb who was slain, the right response is to praise him. So John writes at the beginning of Revelation, to Jesus Christ who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, And made us to be a kingdom priest, serving his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It results in praise when you grasp this. Or a bit later in Revelation 5, John writes, Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. This is who Jesus is. The Christ crucified for us. The Lamb slain for you. And it leaves us with this question. Have you grasped the cross? Have you grasped the cross? Not just intellectually. Hopefully, even as a result of tonight, you understand the cross of Jesus a little bit better. But I mean, have you grasped the cross personally? Have you grabbed hold of Jesus' cross as your salvation, as your exodus? Is he your Passover lamb? Is his blood, as it were, on your doorframe? Or are you still facing the wrath of God for your sin? Those are the two options. Tonight I want to encourage all of us to come again to the cross. Because only there lies the salvation God has for us. Only there is our Saviour. Come to Jesus again in thanks and in praise and in tears and repentance and with joy. Because he loved us and gave himself to free us from our sins by his blood. And if you've never come to Jesus in that way before if you've never given your life to Christ in response to him giving his life to you, then do it tonight, friend. Do it tonight. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that after all our sessions anyway, we have some EU staff who are over in the corner ready to pray. If you've not done that tonight, come down the front after the final song tonight and receive the salvation that Jesus offers you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for those here who do not yet know your grace and salvation and freedom and forgiveness, send forth your Holy Spirit and grant them repentance and faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, you love us. Thank you. And you freed us from our sins by your blood. Praise be to you. And you've made us to be a kingdom, priests serving your God and Father, unworthy though we are. So to you, Lord Jesus, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, be glory and honour and power and dominion forever and ever. Amen.